Well, good morning once again. Glad to see everybody here today and have you back. I think my voice just got weak from singing. I haven't sung for three months. I'm not like some of you who sing in the shower. I, I don't do that. <laughs> I just don't, okay? I, I praise the Lord with my words, but not so much with a melody. So I'm not used to singing, but we'll, we'll be okay this morning. Let's pray over the preaching of the word. And let me get rid of this and hope I don't lose my microphone in the process. <clears throat> Father God, we ask you now to bless the preaching of your word in this place. Um, you know, and I'm sure everybody that's listening today knows that centermost in our, the life of our church is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and how we are saved by his precious blood, and also the word of God as a standard for all ages inspired by the Holy Spirit, without error, trustworthy in all that it says. So now as we open up the Word together this morning, we ask you to, to bless the preaching of your Word in this place. May it do its work in our hearts. Father, I submit to you all of my preparation, all of my words, and I ask you to bring your powerful truth to bear upon our hearts this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay. Well, back before we went online in March, um, I was in the middle of a series on how to know the will of God. How many remember that that's what I was preaching on? Okay. And that last Sunday, March 15th, we had a guest speaker. Um, I don't know if you remember that. It was the uh, Mary King who directs FRCZ. And I had forgotten it until I was looking at my computer this week and realized, oh, she was the last one to, to speak. I wasn't even the last one to speak in our church. But as soon as we went online... I felt like there was such a, such a um, different feeling in the air, so to speak. People's concerns were different. They were think, thinking other things. And I felt like I needed to really, really hone in on what we were feeling, what we were sensing as we suddenly shut down the nation and shut down our states um, to deal with COVID-19. So I really tried to, to speak to those things, um, naturally using the Word of God as our guide, but trying to be really relevant to what we, men and women, were, were feeling and thinking and going through at the time. And so um, I found myself, after we some initial messages and Palm Sunday and Easter, um, I found myself getting into a series on the book of Psalms. And I really feel like we ought to um, continue there in the book of Psalms. At some point, we will get back and finish how to know the will of God. Um, if you know anything about me, you know that I, I finish what I start. I think I've only had one time in my 33 years of ministry here where I actually decided midstream to not finish a series. It was like I just had it, and I thought, it's done, it's over with. But generally, I'm in the mindset that if I start something, I need to finish it. And so we will get back to that at some point. I wonder if you have ever felt or ever questioned if serving the Lord is really worth it. Have you ever kind of thought, maybe, maybe it just isn't worth it trying to serve the Lord? Maybe it hasn't turned out to be what you thought it was going to be. Maybe you feel like God has let you down. He hasn't delivered on, on what you thought He had promised, that He has in some way disappointed you, that He hasn't upheld His part of the bargain. Maybe you take a very pragmatic view and you look at all the, the pros and cons and sometimes you decide or conclude that trusting Jesus 
just isn't worth it. If you've ever had those kinds of thoughts, you are not alone. As we continue our series today on the book of Psalms, we find that Asaph, who is the author of Psalm 73, as well as a few other Psalms, asked the same kinds of questions. Who was Asaph? Asaph was the founder of one of the temple choirs. We read about him in 1 Chronicles 25. David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph for the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. So Asaph and some of the others, they prophesied with musical instruments. So you could, you could conclude, he wrote songs and he led worship. So the idea of having worship leaders in our churches is nothing new whatsoever. It goes back to temple worship in the Old Testament. And Asaph was one of those, those worship leaders. And in some cases, the songs that they wrote actually became part of the Old Testament scripture. And Psalm 73 is a prime example of that. Asaph wrote the song, he led worship with the song, and by the Holy Spirit, it ended up as part of our Holy Scripture, Psalm 73. Let me read it right now. I will be reading from the ESV version. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak this way, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart 
and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Psalm 73 is one of those psalms you just need to be familiar with. Because there's times when all of us reach that point where we think, is it really worth it to serve the Lord? Is it really worth it? When I have those, those moments or, or days or even weeks sometimes where unbeknownst to you, I'm having those thoughts, mine go, my mind always goes to Psalm 73 because I know that that psalmist had the same kinds of questionings and he knew what to do about it and he has shown me what to do about it. And if you don't know the psalm this morning, I want to show you what to do about it. The psalmist admits here that he, the worship leader, had almost lost it. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He almost gave up on God, turned his attention elsewhere, because it seemed like trusting God just wasn't working anymore. And it doesn't help him when he looks around and looks at other people in their lives and the, and the enjoyment that they're having and the blessings that they have and the health that they seem to always be blessed with. It seems to Asaph that those who have no fear of God whatsoever, the wicked, have far easier lives, far more successful-looking lives. Their struggles seem fewer They seem to have better health. They seem to have less problems. And over time, they, the wicked, seem to get even worse in their own characters. They become more callous. They increase their sin. They become more and more proud, more and more boastful, laying hold of the very earth with their tongue. They exalt evil, and they mock, they scoff at good. They're not afraid of challenging God himself. And their words get even more and more boastful and bold. Verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? As best Asaph can tell, God seems distant. He's way off somewhere. He's distant, he's silent, and he never seems to call the wicked to account. And it can reinforce the notion that perhaps sometimes we feel that it doesn't really matter how you live anyway because God doesn't see, and if he does, he's not doing anything about it anyway. Verse 13, surely in vain, Asaph is concluding, have I kept my heart pure? In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Asaph is about to lose it. He's about to become a spiritual casualty. He's about to be done serving the Lord. He's about to be done trusting the Lord. It's very easy for any of us to begin to question 
especially when it seems like people who don't even make a pretense of serving the Lord seem to have far easier lives. When it seems like they get away with their behavior and it's never called to account. There never seems to be any repercussions. Asaph begins to wonder if there's been any benefit whatsoever in following the Lord. He says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. And he even feels like he's the one that's getting punished. Not the wicked, but he, the one who's tried his best to live for the Lord. He says, all day long, I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Now, my friends, any of us can get to that same point when life is hard and when it seems unjust. Even John the Baptist reached that point once. It's really quite interesting to look at the life of John the Baptist. When he was in the desert baptizing, and he saw Jesus coming, there was no question in his mind who Jesus was. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew he was the Savior. He knew he was the Lamb of God who had come to redeem the world. Um, We read this in in John's Gospel. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me according to the eternality of Christ. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So John was full of confidence at that point when he was baptizing. And yet when he found himself later in prison, about to lose his head, literally, he wasn't so sure anymore about this one. We read in Matthew when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect another? So John, who had such tremendous faith at one point, reached the point where he wasn't so sure anymore. His faith was floundering. I think we can take comfort. Part of the reason God has given us the Scripture I mean, it says clearly, so we can learn by example, so we can learn that the, the things we go through are not uncommon to man. The doubts, the fears, the conflicts, the, the mountaintops and the valleys, they are part of the human experience. And the Lord wants us to know that he, he understands that. He knows that, he understands it, and he's given us great examples of men and women in the Scripture to look to. Asaph's doubts and John the Baptist's doubts were like Job's questionings. Job did a yeoman's job of trusting God in the beginning, but after a while, when his suffering just didn't let up, he started questioning the goodness and the justice of God. I think that's one of the problems we run into. We handle a little bit of suffering. We keep our faith strong. We keep believing. We keep trusting. We keep walking. But if the suffering doesn't let up, and it just seems to get worse and worse and worse, we can start to flounder in our faith and ask these kinds of questions. Now, I don't think that we can ever find answers to those kinds of questions by just looking around at people. You can't just look at at Karen's life and Kay's life and 
and Peter's life, and by looking at people, get the answers. You can't look around your neighborhood, your cul-de-sac, and look at the, the, the lives of the people who live near you and get the answers that you need to the profoundest questions that we ask. We surely won't find the answers we need when we are jealous in our hearts of those who seem to have it far easier, far better, far more blessed than we do, while we continue to try to walk with Jesus, and yet it seems like life can be so hard. There is only one way to get resolution to these kinds of questions. And we're told right here in Asaph's psalm, you need to get alone with God. It is the only way Asaph could get resolution. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Entering the sanctuary of God means to get alone with God, to get alone with His Word. It's getting alone with Him, being quiet before Him. It's shutting out all of the other voices all around us. God is not in the wind. He's not in the earthquake. He is in the still, small voice in His Word. When we get alone in a quiet place with God and with His Holy Word, the Scripture, it is there that we often discover that we have been looking at an illusion. The truth is not what we think. The truth is not what we feel. The truth is not what our emotions tell us. Our understanding, even our, our wisdom, our ability to rationalize and to put things together can be completely inaccurate and lead us to a completely inaccurate um, decision. Our human analysis might not be correct. Isaiah says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than my, your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in Proverbs 3, um, scriptures that, that most of you know really, really well, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your steps, or he will make your path straight. The truth is not in the majority position. Maybe we need to hear that again today with all the voices in the world around us. The truth is not in what the majority is saying. The truth is not in who controls the media. The truth is understanding from a biblical perspective. Understanding based on what the Word of God says. It's as we get alone with God and with His Word that we realize anew that it is worthwhile to follow the Lord. It is worthwhile at all times to obey the Lord. And it is at all times wise to trust Him implicitly, though the world is giving way around us. I'd like to hear an amen to that. Okay, thank you. The truth 
is always going to involve the big picture. It's always going to involve the long-term perspective, not just what you see um, with your eyes right in front of you. That's what Asaph found when he entered the quiet place, the sanctuary. He suddenly understood the big picture. What does he say at the end of verse 17? But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. And don't miss this. I have it italicized in my notes. Then I discerned their end. What does he discern? That there is an ultimate destiny for all people. What is the destiny for the proud, for the boastful, for the one who in all their thoughts has no room for God. Verse 18, truly, Asaph says, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. God will, in his timing, judge the world. Make no mistake about it. That is the clear teaching of the scriptures from the first book of the Bible to the very end. Don't make the mistake of thinking just in the short term that you don't see anything happening, you don't see God doing anything about rampant sin in the world. God will, in his timing, judge the world. You can take that to the bank. Don't make any mistake about it. It will happen. One of the very earliest scientists of all time and I mention this frequently because I just, I just love this experiment he did. Maybe it's my engineering background that, that likes it so much. King Solomon, that's what I'm talking about. He was very wealthy, and he could afford, and he had the time to perform large experiments. He had the money to see what worked, what was, what was the secret to happiness in life. And he was able, literally, to try all kinds of, of things. He wondered, is the secret in, in having lots of women? Is the secret in building lots of gardens and groves of trees? He did that too. Is the secret to happiness having lots of gold and silver? Was it going to be, and he tried this too, in education, in achieving wisdom of the mind? Was it going to be in recreation? He tried all these things, and he had the wherewithal to, to pour himself, to pour his funds into each one, attempting to see, is that the chief end of man? Is that where true happiness and joy and meaning and purpose is to be found? And he gets to the very end of his scientific experiment, and you can read it in the pages of Ecclesiastes, and he has a conclusion now, I don't remember a lot about the scientific method, um, but you know, we all study that in school, and I do think there had to be a conclusion at the end, something that you drew from the science of your experimentation. And this is King Solomon's conclusion. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then he mentions this judgment, this ultimate judgment that we alluded didn't allude to, that we said clearly this morning. For God will bring every deed into judgment 
including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Solomon's inclusion was that it really is. It really is worthwhile to trust the Lord. Don't judge by what you see in the short term. Know that God will ultimately judge the world. Paul, when he was speaking to the the men and the women in Athens, said, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we mentioned a little while ago that this idea of God judging the world is found throughout the entire Scripture. And Paul mentions it here in the book of Acts. And who does he say will judge the world? By a man whom God has appointed. And you think, well, I wonder, I wonder who that man is. I wonder who God has appointed. Well, then Paul tells us. And of this he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ will be the judge of the world. So important for us all to have our trust fixed fully in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because he is the ultimate judge. And all those that have put their trust and hope in him, all those who are able to say, by myself, up to myself, I am a poor, wretched sinner, deserving nothing but eternal separation from God, for all who can admit that and then look to Christ and realize that when he died upon the cross, he was paying a price, not for his own sins, but for our sins. For all those, that day of judgment by Christ will not be a day of fear, won't be a day of dread, won't be a day of, of, of alarm for us, wondering what's going to happen, where we're going to end up. But for all those, who persist in refusing the free gift of salvation because of their pride cannot admit that I am a sinner, that I am a sinner through and through, that I was born in sin, that day will be a fearsome day indeed. And it will have one end for those who reject Jesus. Why? Because if someone doesn't have their sin problem dealt with, There is only one appropriate end, and that's eternal separation from God. That is a good definition of what hell is, by the way. And there's nothing else that we could expect for people who reject what God has done for us, for them, through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, what about those who who trust those and those who who, who don't? What does the Bible say? Well, like I said, this is threaded through all of Scripture. Reading from 2 Thessalonians, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. He's talking to believers in that sentence. And he's even um, affirming the fact that he knows that these people in Thessalonica are sorely suffering. But he says... He doesn't say, take heart, I'll add, take heart. Take heart, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us as well. And when will this happen? Paul says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 
Remember who God said will judge the world? It's not going to be kind of a mamby-pamby Jesus. It's going to be the one who appears with blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Um, do you remember a minute ago when I said that that day of judgment will not be a fearsome day for believers? It'll be a blessed day. That's what Paul says right there. So you don't need to be afraid and scared. It's going to be a wonderful day. You're gonna, it's going to be the happiest day of your life when you see Jesus and can fully know and believe for the first time the unconditional love that he has for you and that your sins are put away, far away as the east is from the west. There will be such a load lifted off of every one of us in that, in that moment when we see Jesus. There's never a reason for a believer to fear Judgment Day. Judgment Day will be fearful for ones who reject Jesus, not for those who know him. Asaph, when he has come to his senses at the end of Psalm 73, after he has sat in the sanctuary, he makes the same conclusion. What does he say about the ultimate hope of the righteous? Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And what? Afterward, you will receive me to glory. The hope of eternal life. But what does Asaph say about the ultimate destiny for the wicked? Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So as for me, as for you, let's always fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold on to his word, regardless of what people around you are saying, regardless of your emotions, regardless of what unfolds in history around us. Hold on to the word of God. Hold on to faith in him no matter what. Don't be discouraged when it looks like the righteous suffer and the wicked just keep on getting ahead. Don't be discouraged when it appears that the heavens are silent and God's not watching, he's not seeing, and he's not caring, and he's not doing anything about it. God has given to us his word so that we, people, men, women, children, in every generation might stay the course. Stay the course. The final end for all those who choose to live for self is loss. The final end for the righteous, those who have loved God, those who have been broken before him, those who have hungered and thirsted for righteousness, is very good. You will find that there is no wiser investment of our faith and our trust than to trust Jesus Christ totally and completely. Amen? Amen.